Blog Talk Radio. the IRP5, the gentleman that wrongfully convicted in this state and sincerely wrongfully convicted, the innocent, uh, five have, have done everything to get the story out on the corruption, on the misconduct, and I'll tell you anything you can think of that did not go well for these men based upon the conduct of a federal judge and federal prosecutors. It's clear in this case. Tonight, the journey continues as we really approach the conclusion of all that has happened in this case here in the next, I would believe, couple of weeks. The RP5, the journey to injustice. This is Agency Radio. We kick off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, William Williams, Quentin Stewart, Dennis Merritt, Tanique Wright, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we deal with these issues of the RP5 and the journey to injustice that they have suffered as we seek justice in this case. Um, feel free, ladies and gentlemen, to dial into the show tonight, 646 200 0628 646 And uh, Dennis, as we've been on this topic for several weeks now, your thoughts on proceeding forward as we, again, are in trial here as far as the journey, but as we approach really a, a climactic conclusion of injustice suffered by these guys, how important is it that we get this out? It's very important uh, that we show how uh, the, the system really works and how uh, you can be a perfectly credible uh, small company or business and uh, you're trying to get that American dream. You go out there, you've got the qualifications, and uh, you can easily find out that in this system uh, you can be railroaded, and that's what happened to these guys. I mean, they, they're, they're, their characters were blasted, destroyed. They were, you know, it's just crazy, and it shows you that until America really looks at our justice system, and don't wait till it hits your home, uh, what happened to these gentlemen could happen to you. They were out there. They came. They had this software. It was perfect, and everybody wanted it. So when you got you know these big these big companies who have a leeway into our justice system, look what happens. You know, men. These men were wrongfully convicted. And sentenced to 11 years, I mean, which if you look at that alone, it's just crazy. But I would say that we definitely need to get this out here, get their story out there, let them tell how this justice system, which we say is blind, is not blind at all. No, absolutely right. And uh, we Listen, every time we do this show, uh, no matter how long we've been talking about the IRP5 case, uh, it is clear that it sounds like a new production because it's that absolutely absurd uh, 
these gentlemen went through, and when you hear it, it simply does not seem real that a federal judge, federal prosecutors, and all of these people continue to do the things that they have done. And this is why people have no faith whatsoever in a system that is supposed to be fair. And that, again, that bus left the station a long time ago. Um, it's horrible. Turn to this. William. You know, as you sit here, I mean, we've we relived this over and over again. You talk about the details of this. And, you know, to Dennis's point, people need to be aware that this is going on, and this is one example of probably many that has happened in, in this country where you have guys that are upstanding, they have a dream, they're going for something, they're building something. And, and not only that, they're considering the fact that this country had what, what the country had suffered post 9-11 and the securities that were broken. The things that should have been addressed, you know, after 3,000 people lost their lives, these guys had a dream, they had ambition, they had a passion. They were sitting here to make it a reality, and it was a reality. It still is a reality. And when you think that they lost eight years of their lives, wrongfully convicted, I mean, it's it's still hard to believe. And as you as we talk about this story, we go through here. It's just it's really it's very emotional because you think about how they were not allowed to present their case, evidence in hand. I was there. I I, I was there at, at during trial, and you just sit there and you you realize that this system is so broken. It is such a production that that people that are innocent do not even have the opportunity to present their case. These men are innocent. And with evidence in hand, they're not allowed to even just say, this is who I am. And then from the standpoint, we've talked about this on a couple of shows, that their character was called in question. Mm-hmm. You know, these men these men had, did have any previous or prior history. They had – you saw all of them are businessmen. All of them are, are have – are in the IT field, they have a good uh, good work history. So there's nothing to call in question. Right. And so you sit here and you say, You're you're you are not challenging my character? Yes, you are. You're 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 saying I'm not who I say I am. You're trying to paint this picture, and then the judge allows this picture to be created and given to the jury. The defense is not allowed to present any evidence or even speak for themselves. And if so, so when you look at this, watch it all unfold. It's critical that our listeners understand that this can happen any time, any moment to their lives. Well, at the end of the day, if people are going to judge you based upon where a prosecutor can come in a courtroom, this is what's bizarre to me. You can come in and put my character, my integrity in question at any given time you choose to. But when I want to tell you my side, there are two sides to every case that's done in this country. That's the prosecution. It is the defense. It is a theory by the prosecution. It is a theory by the defense. I should be allowed to counter any, anything that the prosecution lays on the table in an opening or closing argument. I should be allowed to do that. 
the fact that that wasn't allowed goes to the depth of the bias that this judge attempted to uh, uh, attempted to do here uh, in this case. So uh, it's one of those things that are just as bizarre as it gets to me. Dennis. And it is bizarre because if you think about that, a judge is supposed to be a referee, uh, not on either side. But in this instance, the judge was on the prosecutor's side. So there was from the beginning. So, I mean, these guys, I mean, no matter how well and and they they did well in representing themselves. I mean, because they showed that. Uh, most of the, most all of the witnesses were purged, right. but but as you can see though, when you got a referee that is on the side of the prosecuting team, you can't win because what you're trying to present to show your innocence, she's not allowing. It. So it's it's, it's, it's just bizarre. ridiculous. But again, it's from the beginning of those proceedings to now to the end of it, and and. To go through an entire trial based upon the fact you got a judge that's against you on a federal front who is supposed to uh, seek justice in a situation. Again, justice left the building a long time ago. We're going to come back after the break. The RP5, the journey to injustice. We pick it up in the courtroom right after this. This is AJC Radio. Picture this. A 75-year-old man convicted of murder waiting for his trial to finally go through. He's been on death row for 25 years now and finds out he's been wrongfully convicted and is completely innocent. Not only does this mean that 25 years of his life has been spent in jail for no reason, but that the actual murderer could still be out there right now. The bad thing is that this exact thing happens more often than you can help stop it by supporting our campaign to abolish the death penalty. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room, to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Red. 
black, white. We're all the same color. When you turn off the light. When does it stop being partly cloudy and start being partly sunny? Why is the word abbreviation so long? Are English muffins just muffins in England? Why is it called a washing line and not a drying line? Do fish get thirsty? If ghosts can walk through doors, why don't they fall through floors? Do you yawn when you sleep? If prunes are dried plums, how do they make prune juice? Why do doctors leave the room when you change? They're going to see you naked anyway. Do board chefs wear hairnets? How much deeper would the ocean be if all the sponges were taken out? Do you believe someone who says they're a chronic liar? Why is sandwich bread square and sandwich meat round? Life's full of hard questions. Ask one more. You might just save a lot. Children as children 
It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Again, the call-in number tonight is 646-200-0628. Feel free to dial in to this show. uh, And if you have any comments, we'd like to hear from you tonight regarding the RP5 and the journey as we now get into the trial. Uh, I believe we've already started that, David. And uh, where are we right now in that process? Well, we discussed a little bit last week about some of the we wanted an overview of some of the testimony and some of the central issues of the government government's own witnesses uh disproving their case obviously as we step through uh the transcript of not only of some of these witnesses but other issues will be will be hitting in the in the near in the very near term what happened with transcript when it, when the judge judge arguello denied us access to a transcript where where we accused her of violating our Fifth Amendment rights. Um, She didn't want to turn over the transcript, but after admitting that she didn't do anything wrong, well, if you didn't do anything wrong, why why wouldn't you want to exonerate yourself by by saying, she said, well, I didn't say that. Well, then, if you didn't say it, the court reporter has it. She didn't want to do it, and neither did the prosecutor never came to her defense either because they both knew what was on that transcript. But we'll be getting into some of the details of that of that transcript, as well as some more of the witness testimony. Uh, the government's own witnesses, we really, our cross-examination of government witnesses was enough to, to win the day, because obviously the, the government is supposed to have to be able to prove their case uh, to, uh, and prove that they have the evidence uh, to convict. And unfortunately, uh, Americans are naive about the criminal justice system, and I was actually, and I'll get into something a little later, what I saw on television regarding, uh, or some comments even on Twitter and on TV regarding what's happening uh, with the raids at the uh, at Trump's Mar-a-Lago house, and it's interesting how people perceive the justice system. They really don't know the realities of how the justice system works, because honestly, they've never been through it. So they've they've drunk all the American uh, constitutional Kool-Aid as if and and they give judges, prosecutors uh, the benefit of the doubt that they the vast majority of time that they're doing the right thing, even in light of actual evidence show that they did the exact opposite. But they must have had a good reason for it. Uh, We live in an ends justifies the means criminal justice system and. Uh, both judges and prosecutors are doing things uh, because doing illegal things, unconstitutional things, because they feel it justifies, uh, because they feel like men ought to be put in prison uh, irrespective of evidence. Well, we don't like what you did, even though it's not criminal, so we're still going to put you in prison. So that's the realities of the justice system, and we talk a little bit about the raid and the reality of the justice system. So we have a 
Jen, that'll just be a basic comment uh, based on uh, what we saw and what's going on in people's complete ignorance about the U.S. criminal justice system. But David, yeah. you bring a good point up with the, the raid and uh, former President Trump. They did this to a president, a sitting president or a former president. And so who are, who is the other people? I, I mean, you think about the theatrics, you talked about everything that we've been through, and we're watching this play out in the media, like some of the aspects of it is like if someone has an axe to grind against you or whatever, done like a statement you've done, made or whatever, business, doing business for law enforcement, look at the look at where some people in our so-called justice system, what links they will go to to do whatever. Well, and I'll, since you unpacked that a little bit, I'll make this, this, this quick comment. What I heard today by a lady who's a human rights attorney, I think she was on Fox News Outnumbered, uh, and what I heard her say is these type of 20, 30-man raids are reserved if they're looking for a dead body. That's simply not true. That's right. She doesn't understand what the FBI and federal law enforcement do every day and and their tactics and their intimidation and the abuse of power they do every single day. So this raid, even in Trump Mar-a-Lago, Mar is nothing unusual. This is how they operate. And we witnessed it firsthand. And this, this was a white collar. They were there to look for documents uh, at, at our allegedly look for documents at our company. They came storming in with 20-plus agents, and, and we had probably like 15 people, maybe that 12 to 15, maybe working at the business at that time. They sent in 20-plus agents. They heard all the black people in, into the break room, but now people are on the TV. That's, what, that's the problem with the people's perception of justice, and they really don't know how it works. This is the FBI. This is how they function. Now that it's functioning uh, as is, against uh, the former president, all of a sudden everybody's acting like they're shocked because honestly they, they are shocked because they really don't know how the system works and that's the importance of really stepping through uh, some of the trial of the IRP case. No, for real, uh, good point made there. And let's say this to be fair. Um, the country right now is divided right down the middle. You're going to have people to say the FBI was justified to go in. Is every raid the, the FBI does, is it unjustified? Or are there issues where they've gone in and raided a place and found, as as, as uh, the lady alluded to, uh, where the dead bodies are or whatever, whether you're dealing with mafia or all those things, organized crime and all those. So uh, there's a balance here. And, again, nobody knows the facts yet. Uh, of what was what what Judge signed off for at, 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 regarding President Trump, we don't have any of that information at this point. Now, but but keep, the, keep one thing in mind: Americans automatically assume perception. No, they they actually in in uh, the criminal criminal law 2.0 written by federal judge Alice Kaczynski, the system's based on assumptions. They assume a judge has integrity. They assume the FBI agent has integrity, and irrespective of what they say, so don't question them. These are these are FBI agents, just like Judge Arguello said in that case. FBI agents don't lie, lady. Come on, I, you you've seen them lying in your courtroom before. And you exclude right. the fact that these FBI agents and judges they vote just like me and you. Right. They, exactly have, right. they have political motives. They have personal motives. They have they have biases, personal biases. So you can't assume, like for instance. Like in our case, 
you don't even know what they told the judge to get the search warrant. Right. And when you find out, it's very thin. So basically, it's like you don't know if they went to some judge late at night. He's tired. He doesn't really want to deal with this. Here, have your warrant go. You don't know how this stuff this works because a lot of this is kept behind closed doors to the American public. It's not transparent how they go in there, how they present to the judge. What happens to an FBI agent if they find out that he did send false information to the court to get the search warrant? Well, nothing. Right. You, you don't. These are the things people take for granted because right. you're seeing the news. They hype it up. You you get you get some on television and it, that says, "Hey, I work for the federal government." You assume there's this high bar of integrity. But then when you ask yourself, well, who goes back and checks the boxes to make sure everything was on the up and up? And a lot of times it's too late. By the time you're doing this, you're in trial. You're trying to argue that things that were not uh, done properly by the search warrant or by the federal government, but at this point you're you're preaching to the choir because the, the judge may be like, well, I'm, you're not stopping this case no matter what we're going through. It doesn't matter at this point. You're going. They're going to finish this case. They're going to say you're wasting taxpayer dollars. We're going to have a trial, and that's not how these things work. And finally, we're going to find out they're self-policing institutions. Judges police judges, so you don't have an independent third party out there. Uh, they try to say judges are apolitical. The Kendrick said that's not true. FBI agents aren't apolitical. We've seen that pub- publicly. We watched all this stuff go on uh, with crony, with cronyism is rife throughout the entire criminal justice system. It, it exists. But no matter what you hear on the media, well, uh, and, and you were talking about uh, the warrant, how it got signed off. Well, the, 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 the way the media justifies, well, federal judge signed off on the warrant. They had to have probable cause. If they didn't have probable cause, they'll be challenged in the upper court. That's just not true. In some cases, exceptional cases it is, but just like a, a, a congressional attorney told a just cause, no, uh, appellate court judges are there to, to, to up, uphold the lower court judges. They're not there right. to overturn them. So with that, with that uh, caveat in mind, this is the way the system works. But nobody wants to believe it. No, when you when you look at the um, the search warrants, they shop the search warrant around to a friendly judge so that they know they're going to get a signature. You look at our search warrant. Our search warrant had false information on it, but it didn't matter. They still got the search warrant signed. And one final note: we we had the number three at, at the beginning of our case. We had the number three, the guy who was who was defending us pre-indictment was the number three attorney in the Washington, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. He said he was in the office for 15 years before going into defense work. He told us, he said, most uh, search warrants are just rubber stamps. Judges don't pay a lot of attention to them, especially when, when it's concerned to just average people. They just kind of, well, it looks like there might be probable cause. They don't do an exhaustive analysis. They say the government uh said this and said this happened so i'll go ahead and rubber stamp them and let them go in and and uh violate somebody's fourth amendment and and, and conduct some sort of illegal search got you um it is it is at best a a difficult situation and i think when you've lived through a system that has proven through behaviors 
uh, you lose faith in the system, period. It's just going to happen. And you're definitely going to lose faith in the FBI, which the FBI has not had a good name for years. Uh, that's not that's not news. That's been that way for years. Uh, and anybody that who I don't care who it is, it could be the former president, it could be a sitting president, whatever. Uh, you're not going to have faith in the system. Well, and but li- listen to this other comment. Well, 99 percent of the rank and file are just good, hardworking people. That's a, you don't know the rank and file. You're just making this categorical drawing this categorical conclusion that everybody in, in the FBI that's not a high-level official is not subject to corruption. But I submit that fiefdoms are everywhere. All politics are local. So at the local level, they're not doing it at the presidential level because that's all up at the DOJ and, 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 and the high political. But they got local politics. They got local people who know local people, and this stuff still goes on with the so-called rank and file of the FBI. Power corrupts. It doesn't matter if your power is, is, at, the, uh, is at the congressional D.C. Uh, level and at the DOJ level in D.C. There's, there's, there's power that corrupts people at the state and uh, local levels as well. Absolutely right. William? You know, and as you're talking, I was, um, I was thinking it's, it's all interwoven in the, into the system. You just you just have to see it when you hear that we have to rule in the light most favorable to the government. And then you also are sitting there and you're watching the judge and the prosecution. And you hear the term you hear this say, well, you work for you work for me. You realize that this is there is no unbiased or non-biased. There's no element of that in this situation. You know that that prosecution prosecutor works with that judge on and they have a working relationship and so you know that there's chatter going on there's banter going on there's all kind of things that's happening with these two individuals and you're sitting in there fighting for your life and you realize that the judge who is supposed to be neutral here a neutral party is not neutral because that judge said it's in verbatim will rule in a light most favorable to the government. The prosecutor that's sitting there and that entourage is they're all in cahoots. So you're sitting here, you're you're basically going into a, a two to one fight and they could do whatever they want. And so, you know, until you're exposed to you're exposed to this and you hear this, you sit in the courtroom and you hear this kind of stuff, you think Oh, the the, ju- the judicial system is great. It's, you know, we have the best system in the world. Not even. And especially not when you're in there trying to, uh, you know, you're fighting for your life. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Come right back. Make sure we're queued up. This is AJC Radio, the journey of the RP5. We'll be right back. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. Yo, what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Dawson. I'm Hayden Christian. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Jared Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for a natural disaster. Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit DoSomething.org to find out how. I'm a father. 
I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, sentenced as an adult at age 16, sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost, isolated, ostracized, misjudged, terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we We have have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We can can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you were the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Good morning, students, and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because he's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot. But I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work, driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he took all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. We know you care. Now it's time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders facing trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. 
odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 1 in 2 men, 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation. For the ones we love. For our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. Ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, as we have now are actually in the courtroom of the RFP5 case, uh, we're going to get to that. I want to play a quick, a quick clip really quick. Uh, it gives a little bit of backdrop. David Banks was actually being interviewed um, regarding some of the issues in the RFP5 uh, case. Uh, after that, we'll talk about it briefly, but then we're going to move very quickly uh, into the actions of the court, things that happened. It is our hope to conclude this series uh, here in the next week or two uh, at a minimum. So uh, please tune in. Uh, tell anybody you know about this. Hey, you guys need to tune in to the show. We archive all of our shows as well. Uh, feel free to go to AJCRadio.com, and uh, you can listen to all the shows regarding the IRP5 uh, case. So let's play the clip. We have uh, we have uh, David Banks uh, with us now from again the FCC prison camp in Florence, Colorado. Uh, David, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much. Um, in the limited time that we have with you, what is it that you want my audience to understand about what has happened to you as it relates to IRP Solutions? First and foremost, uh, I'd like to say. Uh, in, in the case of the IRP-6, the government was fully aware of our business activities. Um, in a proffer we submitted to the government, uh, which provided overwhelming evidence not only of our business activities, investment activities, uh, seeking investment, etc., the government was fully aware of who we were dealing with uh, in the federal government, what agencies we were dealing with. Uh, we went through, uh, we kept weekly and chronicle weekly activity reports of all of our business activity for approximately a year and a half to two years. So we have very detailed information we provided to the government with the proffer on what was going on with our company, including the stuff that was going on with staffing companies. Uh, additional to that, we had a reasonable expectation of revenue at various points between 2002 to 2005, uh, but we kept getting strung along by the government uh, with repeated requests to see the software do more. At, at some point, we got kind of got caught in a catch-22, and obviously it was a very uh, frustrating situation to be uh, continue, continuing to extend our company in debt uh, and anticipation of the government in uh, engaging in business. They they had spoke about at the end of 2003, uh, 
uh, a $12 million pilot project. So we're working toward these types of goals. In 2004, our resource from the NYPD uh, said he anticipated us closing business with the NYPD at the, at the early part of 2004. So we didn't uh, just casually engage the company uh, uh, financially to go, in this time, to go into debt. We had uh, goals based on what we're being told from the Department of Homeland Security, as well as our resources, uh, our resource there at the NYPD. So we made a decision to move forward uh, with this business in anticipation of, of $12 million engagement in the end of 2003 in business with uh, the NYPD early part of 2004. Well, there you have it. A uh, little bit of information, uh, David, in regards to uh, really very uh, important information there as really the agenda of the IRP-5 uh, strictly, strictly was there to do business. It's just That's just the way it was. And how they were able to pull out anything else with the stuff lined up, the interviews, the traveling, all the these are not these people. Let me tell you something. If you're trying to put a false narrative to a group of people, the people probably just sit home doing next to nothing and scheming up how to how to do things that are not right or commit crimes. The evidence in support of the IRP five and their story and their product was crystal clear. What was being pushed here it had nothing to do with the nonsense uh, put on by this court. And though every time you hear it, uh, it is just, it is mind-boggling. It is very, very troubling to me. David, your thoughts on that? Well, you're, as I mentioned in that, in that interview, uh, our debt was criminalized. And that was confirmed by a former federal appeals judge. We extended the company in debt, as I said on the interview, in anticipation of gaining in anticipation of gaining a contract obviously we had uh just hardcore uh not unrealistic uh belief in our product um and given the feedback we were getting from these agencies we decided to ex extend our company in debt now i'm in presently looking up uh the clip where the fbi agent uh, which is a good segue in October 13, 2011 under oath actually said, if we had paid our debts uh, and get his exact words, we wouldn't be uh, in court right now. So we wouldn't be criminally charged. We wouldn't be, uh, have gotten convicted. Uh, and this, these are the words from the FBI, the lead FBI agent's mouth that, okay, you guys, uh, you black guys can't possibly go out, create this kind of debt and think you're not going to go to prison for it. Um, that's in essence uh, was what we were prosecuted, indicted, uh, went to trial, and were ultimately convicted of. And that was confirmed by former federal appeals judge H. Lee Sarakin after reviewing the case, including trial transcripts. Yep. So, Dave. And remember that during the first grand jury, one of the jurors said to me, why did you keep incurring debt? And I gave them that whole explanation, 
And they totally understood it. They even asked the prosecutor. So if I don't pay, if I don't pay my credit card bill, you're taking me to you're, you're going to put me in jail. And that grand jury never indicted. So let me add to that. So what the government did after that grand jury didn't indict, they wouldn't call any of the IRP five back to the grand jury. Because it's too because the truth that Dave Zappolo told the grand jury uh, just completely ruined the government's ability to get an indictment. Uh, so what in the second indictment, you'll find out in 2007, going into 2008, the government said, we're not going to call any more witnesses. We don't want any of them talking to the grand jury. We're only going to call an FBI agent that will provide the narrative that we want to ensure an indictment. So, so this is the reality of the criminal justice system. As we spoke earlier, people don't even know what the reality of the criminal justice system. Prosecutors suborn perjury. They encourage perjury in their case. They watch perjury. They watch things that the judge did in this case and stayed silent. And we'll get into that as well, where, where the former federal appeals judge, H. Sarakin, said that the prosecutor's silence about the conduct of the judge spoke volumes. So this is this is where we're at. We're we're in a court because of debt. And we went to prison for eight years because of debt and because the prosecutor got in there and manipulated a narrative that made us look like we were doing something wrong. And again, the jury system, average people don't understand what's actually going on. The jury system effectiveness of it is, is very much uh, is a fallacy. It really is not an effective way to try cases. The 12 jury peers, you never get your peers anyway. Wow. Clint, you had a comment? Yeah. I'd uh, like to pick up on what David was just saying uh, about uh, the uh, FBI agent that they called in the grand jury. And, you know, they, they uh, put into discovery two different versions of those uh, witness statements that they had uh, done their research on. Uh, Agent Moen was his name. And so he uh, uh, developed a whole set of uh, FBI forms, uh, witness statements in writing of what the witnesses were saying against us. And that was totally different than what uh, Agent Smith, the the, the former uh, uh, head of the FBI investigation, uh, had witnesses uh, that were reporting. And so we went, actually dug into discovery, over 18,000 pages, and fought, found those two different versions of the witness statement, and they were contradictory. They were contradictory uh, from the first thing they said to the second thing they said as the same witness. So you could see where the FBI, the government, actually uh, somehow uh, got these people to change their statement and have derogatory information uh, saying that we did something wrong well, uh, to actually support their support their narrative. Yeah, I think we got a caller. Let's take a caller. Uh, I believe we got Joan on the line. Yes, I'm. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead, please. Okay, um, I was um, researching how many FBI agents are under investigation. 
And they, there are thousands of agents. And I found one article that said you can count them on one hand. Uh, and that's five fingers. So until somebody does something with these agents, are they, um, whoever is overseeing them, starts really investigating the complaints against them, it's going to continue and it's going to get bigger and bigger. No, absolutely. Thanks for the call. Clint, go ahead. Yeah, that was an excellent comment uh, because uh, that's so true. But we actually seen them in action of, and you know that they're trained to do this. They're actually trained to go in and, uh, you know, coerce the witnesses to make the statements that they need to. And you're talking about, are you talking about the grand jury or are you just talking no, about? No, we're, we're talking about the, the agents, uh, FBI agents in general, how, how they do their investigations and what they put in writing. So uh, in, in reference to the, uh, the case of the RP5. The witness statements. The witness yeah. statements that were allowed. In. Were they ever objected to? Yeah. I mean, and to that point, Mont, yes, they were. We would, on cross-examination, David uh, did a phenomenal job because you saw, from as Clint's point, we, n nothing of a contract was ever mentioned before the first grand jury. Now they had to go back and change the narrative or lie, and they led the witnesses, oh, because my name was throughout, did, did uh, Mr. Harper tell you had a a contract. You heard these four words. It was implied. It was I thought. Uh, so all these things, and we this is in discovery. The same, but he never said he had a contract. But they, this, those are the assumptions. Look. So when we got him on cross examination, to the to your point, that was brought up and said, well, you said this on such and such date, but now you're in court saying this. Well, and, yeah, let me just. I have every right to assume I'm going to close a deal if I'm selling something. I have a right to assume, right. for instance, if I get a a contract for anything, whether it's, say it's construction or sure. lawn care or whatever it is, and I've talked to a family, they need my services, right? And it went good. It looks good. Everything points to we're probably going to close the deal. They're saying, hey, let me email you uh, a proposal of, of sure. whatever. You have every indication to believe this is going well. Right. So even the argument of an assumption or assuming we're going, we had a contract or we're getting one, well, that's, that's half the battle of sales. Right. I got to believe, I got to believe years ago when I was a salesman right. at Bally's U.S. Swimming Fitness, when my boss said, man, how's it looking for the quarter this looks month? Great. Uh, looks good. Right. I tend to close such and such amount of business. Absolutely. By the end of the month, which means I get my bonuses. Right. That is part of sales. It's not a crime. I, I, I understand right? that. I, and I agree with you. But the point here with Robert Moen, Matthew Kirsch took those statements right. and said that we, again, it was in writing. We were in discovery. Nothing was ever mentioned in the contract. We assume we thought, which is, and I agree. Right. But Kirsch went to the step further and said, this is what was said. That's therefore the indictment was brought, the grand jury indicted, and that's where the criminal charge for mail and wire fraud. So again, they, they never said that uh, Demetrius Harper told them that they had a contract, but he made this illusion, this this uh, this nebulous uh, area that he lied, 
and therefore created a uh, said they had a contract. Therefore, we are uh, trying to prosecute on, but off of that basis. That is the most ridiculous thing I have. But ever that heard. is exactly. But the, but the whole case is ridiculous. Exactly. But this is the art of indicting a ham sandwich. Right. Okay. So you make it look like that the normal business practices that are in industry that you would understand, right? That are they they shape it and frame it as a criminal act or a criminal intention, and then they put conspiracy on it and br- right. bring everybody in and say, well, they try to get into the minds of the individual. You don't know what we were thinking. There's no way know that. And so this is how you indict a ham sandwich by 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 all of this innuendo and supposition and 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 and. and the way that they do it, 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 it really is uh, something to go through. And people don't, like David said, if you haven't gone through the system, this is how it happens. And they, they truly can indict you on anything. And plus, you got to look at, too, when an FBI agent is doing an interview of anyone, there's no court there. They can do leading questions. Right. So if you went through our transcript, a lot of these questions were kind of pushed in that direction by the FBI. It wasn't. Hey, what was your interactions with RP Solutions? It was, did they tell you uh, that they had a contract? Did they tell you these things like that? And they were, and you, and a person, a witness being interviewed can tell what the officer wants. And we see this when they right. do interrogations. They know how to push a person in a direction to give me the answer that I want. And that happened quite often if you read the transcripts, especially when you saw that there were two different FBI agents, one FBI agent who didn't get an indictment. So their questions were totally different from the FBI that got the indictment on the exact same case. So the way they do things, that it's it's not this fair, open on the up and up question of witnesses. It's actually we have a case. We have we have a in my mind as an agent a resolution that I want, and I want to leave that uh, witness to that. To that. Let, let, let's remember what what the uh, what the actual situation is about uh, in terms of you know the the quote unquote victims. Uh, so he, he goes into the room. He leaves with, we're, we're going to try and get you your money back. We're going to try and get you, 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 you extended credit to these guys, $15,000, whatever it is, right? We're going to try and get that back for you. Who said right? that? Well, I'm saying this is how you lead that person into agreeing with how you want this question answered, right? We're going to try and get your money back, right? So this little pre prelude to the, the question session. And, and, and let's also remember, none of this stuff was recorded back then. It was only according to the agent's type statement of what they said. Okay? So we're reading that. That's what's in discovery. And so he can easily coerce the witness into um, making the statement and signing the statement as he has typed it up. And when, Dave, you, go ahead. when you look at this whole thing, they talk about we told them we had contracts. Right. Well, that that supposedly induced them to doing business with us. But when we in, when we cross-examined all of these witnesses, they didn't make the decision. The decision was made by their credit department through a DNB. Right. We haven't had one witness when he said, "Oh no, they told me that they had a contract." Well, did you ask them about the contract? No. Did you ask them how much the contract was for? No. Well, if the contract was for $10, would it have mattered? No. Well, that doesn't make any sense. If you were making a decision on whether to do business with an organization based off of the contract that they said they had, 
you would ask questions. Who is it with? How much is it for? How long does it last? Yeah. Not one of the staffing companies, not one of the witnesses ever asked that question. And when they were asked if they asked that question, they said no. So it makes no sense. Right. No, it makes absolutely no sense. Listen, the entire process to me, uh, it smells all the way as bad as you can get here. And I think the reason it's troubling is because um, from the time this process started, the system was against you. It's not like you got to a certain point and things turned. This was this is the danger of prosecutors and judges that operate at the level that Judge Arguello did. Because the bottom line is what you have here is complete bias. And you weren't given a fair case. You can just say it, 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 this was not a defense that would be fair because the judge wasn't fair. The prosecution was not fair. The government of the United States simply was not fair. And you don't have a chance. And you talk about it being not fair. Here is a great example, and you can see this in the transcripts. When have you ever seen this ever? The judge, before we brought up our witnesses, made us discuss in open court with the prosecutor there what our witnesses were going to testify to. So what she did is she gave the game plan to the prosecutor so that he could figure out how he could impeach our witnesses, which he didn't, but how he could address the questions that we were asking our witnesses. You never hear about that happening. No, you don't. Let's, let's go ahead and go forward into the trial. Uh, as we said, we were going to go there tonight. David, where are we? And what what's necessary to be? Uh, well, we're going to jump. Yeah, we're going to jump around and highlight uh, some of the witnesses. Uh, I talked about on October 13th. Uh, Special Agent John Smith said if we had a pretty much paid our debts, that we wouldn't be in court right now. So I talked about that a little bit earlier. Then uh, during during that same. Uh, examination of, of the of the lead investigator john smith he also told us that he was aware that of our dealings with the department of homeland security and fbi agents and a large demonstration we did with the department of homeland security so said this the special agent uh the lead agent over, over the case the investigator the fbi investigator um and then i'm at uh we went down a line of questioning about a white collar supervisor who received a letter from a staffing company. Now he claims during trial that he claimed during trial, this uh, John Smith, uh, FBI agent John Smith claimed during trial that the, the supervisory special agent didn't really know that he had an investigation going on in the spring when she told uh, a staffing company that that the matter with IRP would best be handled civilly, and she wrote uh, the staffing company actually uh, the supervisory special agent in the white collar part of the FBI in Denver actually sent a letter to the staffing company telling them that they should pursue a matter with the FBI. Now. 
when I questioned Special Agent Smith whether or not the Denver division oversees Colorado Springs, he said yes. So how how is she unaware of your investigation? This will be a major investigation that the FBI was pursuing, but uh, supervisory special agents didn't know anything about it. Uh, so and then he goes along. So if you start if you start looking at this just from an intent perspective, uh, the FBI agent admits you're under oath and testifies under oath that he was aware that we were engaged uh, fairly critically with the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so just from that perspective knowledge of the government that there was no crime that we were involved in legitimate business and had an opportunity uh to close business at the uh testimony and, and interviews with people actually with federal agencies so i just think that's a very interesting uh a part of the uh conversation that, that needs to be exposed here and when you look at this testimony with john smith when he was asked if he had ever said that we wouldn't be here if we had paid our bills, he said, oh, no, absolutely not. Then we pulled up the transcript from the hearing where he said that. Oh, yes, now I remember. I did say that. And when you see they talk about how the FBI never lies, that was the second time I caught him in a lie while he was on on the stand. The first time I caught him, my court-appointed attorney would, didn't want to do anything about it. No, and I know I do know we, we talked earlier uh, in regards to the raid. Uh, that raid was motivated, if we remember correctly, when, after you guys had seen Homeland Security, they saw something they had not seen before. And as soon as these things started to be getting, beginning to get lined up, uh, we talked about the one module, David, that, that and all out of five contest was a hundred million dollars roughly. Well, uh, what, right. let me just give a little background. Uh, after nine eleven, uh, the government was finally looking for software uh, because the FBI's software was antiquated, and and the Congressional nine eleven committee had found out it contributed to nine eleven. Mm -hmm. uh, during the summer, uh, early fall of two thousand four. The Department, a joint Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice held an industry day for companies to submit their products, uh, their software products, case management solutions for the federal government to review. They wanted to see all the tools that were out there at their disposal. That the RFI, which is the thing they float out to all the companies and, and, and send out to all the companies, was based on our software. Mm -hmm. So at the end of uh, the submission and review process, we were called back a week later, do a demonstration for what I recall was about 20 members from various federal law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, Immigration and Customs, Border Patrol, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, U.S. Marshals were actually there. After that, that meeting, the Department of Homeland Security official told us that the FBI loved our software. Uh, and that was in October, that was October 28th that that meeting took place, 2004. Okay. Uh, shortly thereafter, 
they requested a quote. About a month later, they requested a quote on December uh, 1st or 2nd of 2004. We submitted a quote for in excess of $100 million for two modules. One was a confidential informant module. The other was a, a case, the central case, case management module. And as a result of that, he had told us that he needed that quote to put us into the t- upcoming 2005 budget. So, okay. So uh, the raid happened once it, you guys were put in for the budget. Is that correct? Well, it was two months after we, a little over two months, it was December 1st, we put in the quote. Okay. By February 9th, 2005, our business was raided, okay. alleging that IRP Solutions was a purported software company. Now, this is with the full knowledge that the government was a wet mayor. We had this huge meeting with the Department of Homeland Security. They requested a budget for the software. So, in essence, he was saying, well, you guys obviously had to go in and deceive. That, that's what makes the story unbelievable. We deceived everybody in law enforcement about top investigators, top officials in DHS, top officials at the FBI. We just were able to deceive all of them that we had software and we deceived them with a budget of a hundred million dollars, which was not bought, which was balked at, which wasn't even balked at. And later, uh, DHS official Bill Witherspoon, which was a, a high level program project manager over and worked for the exec and an IT executive there over information technology for DHS said that it would, that this software would have yielded, if it was implemented at DHS, a billion dollars. Okay. Let me go ahead and, and talk about the convenience. How convenient term. That two months is what you just said. December and February, the place was raided. Yes, the first part. So it's so, actually a little over two months. So how convenient is it that you have a software, a, as a, a offer, a, a quote has been turned in in December? At the request of the government. At the request of the government, which means this is moving very rapid. And what they've seen here, my understanding is that this statement was made, we've never seen anything like this. Um, And this was something that was on the radar. How convenient is it that a raid happens two months after this quote was was submitted? That's That's not a coincidence. This is the fact, if you're talking to, listen, conspiracy theories have yielded a lot less, a lot more with a lot less amount of money in situations where whether people were silenced, whether people were threatened, whether they were intimidated. It was well short of a billion dollars that we've seen in the history of this country. Right. You're right. not telling me that with almost the, the, the window or the, the amount being close to a billion dollars, that everything that you could possibly think of there was no theory. That that's the thing. You're talking that's insanity. They couldn't even theorize this. Now remember I said that he said that we were a purported software company. We're talking about search warrants, ironically, and search warrants affidavit as related to the Trump thing. Nobody knows what's what's in that in the in the search of his house. Mm-hmm. But in our affidavit, knowing of our uh 
deep involvement with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the Department of Justice and FBI, and with the NYPD. In that search warrant, he said we were a purported software company. Definition of purported is appearing or stated to be true, though not necessarily not necessarily so. So to spin that, okay, these guys aren't really a software company. So this is what he submitted to a judge. This is a purported software company. Uh, they're not developing software. They're just out there uh, ripping off staffing companies, which was a complete uh, fal- falsity of what he was presenting to the judge. So when you start talking about search warrants, the affidavit, you don't know what's true or untrue. You actually see that. But this is what was in our company, and this is what the knowledge of the government was at the time when they filled out this, this the false information in the search. Well, well, this is what's bizarre because the consequences are dire. They came back later and took that off the table. That the purported part, they had to eliminate that. Is that correct? They never really eliminated no. it. They just kind of uh, so, uh, always always had this in some sort of tacit, almost silent type overtone in everything they presented at, at trial. They couldn't come out and explicitly say it, but everything they presented uh, to the jury showed them that these guys weren't really software guys. And, and, I, think they I, knew, you, and I think the government knew that wouldn't fly because his opening statement turned from us not being a software company, but my, that we wanted free labor. That, that's, what I, that's the point so, I'm getting yeah. to. But the damage was done. If you went to the judge saying this is a purported software company in which he issued what he issued, a search warrant, a search warrant then, then you want to back that off and say, well, no, they did this. But what the tactics in which you use were strategically set. Like you said, Kendrick, that wasn't going to fly. Well, well, look overall, the government kept changing tactics, whether it was the grand jury. Well, Dave Zappola went in, brought evidence, told the grand jury why we extended our company in debt. So once he told them that, well, we got to change tactics. We can't call any more people to the grand jury. We have to put an FBI agent on the stand. Now you fast forward to trial uh, or the, the, the search warrant. It's purported. That's in the search warrant. So they continue to, uh, to, to engage in this deceit and these lies. This is a ported software company to get a warrant. Now you're at trial. Problem. Now you're at trial, and they're still spinning and presenting evidence in a way that we weren't a a uh, software company. Quick, quick fact: one of the and we had three eight federal agents working for our company for a year before the raid. One of one of them they interviewed Gary Hillberry. I'll bring up his testimony uh, later. Didn't even want to answer the question. He had sent a letter that favored us and said that we were that we had a viable software product. This is before the raid. But we were still a purported software company. That was so, that was an affidavit, right? It was an affidavit from a 30-year veteran who headed up Immigration and Customs in Denver. He was one of our consultants at the company. He sent that letter. They had a viable software product and appeared to be moving forward to acquire state and local contracts. And we'll read some direct quotes from him. And, uh, and, let's, and let's not make the biggest diversion was once you get this search warrant saying that we're a purported software company in the first grand jury, you're attacking Rose Banks. So you, that, that's, there were so many theories and back and forth. Right. None of this makes sense. Well, the bottom line is once this gentleman, the 30-year veteran, you said, of the uh, customs 
once he says in a letter that this is a viable software product, the very thing in which you got the warrant for is killed. Right. Yeah, but he never mentioned that. This is the deal. He knew this two weeks before he got the warrant and executed on our company. This information no, that, he had. No, no, no. This is what I'm saying. That makes it more egregious. Right. You use basically a false narrative. Exactly. To get the warrant. Exactly. Then all of a sudden you got you have that information. This is so bizarre to me. You had information that number one, the foundation of your warrant has no credibility. And let's let's keep in mind that DHS researched before the RFI process, the request for information for the industry day that David mentioned earlier, they did research for two years, okay? For a product like this, okay? And they told us after the request for formal quotation, formal quotation, that goes to the contracts officer for a federal contract, okay? Uh, after that, they said we have satisfied the period of research and due diligence to justify a sole source that there's nobody out there in the industry, that there's only one company, a sole source to get this software, okay? So that's why they used our software capabilities to construct their request for information. And don't forget the uh, Mueller, Robert Mueller, the director of the FBI, sat before Congress, okay, talking about we have a, a, a commercial off-the-shelf solution with no name to, to, for these problems. There's one company that has a, has a, has a solution. There is, we have identified a commercial off-the-shelf solution. Who are they talking about? IRP solutions. Well, I'm aware of that, but, but the, what's ironic about the quote of what he said before Congress was right. that it was the software, software with no name. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. This, he, but he, he was vague. But, 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 but the essence was this was after shortly after the raid. Correct. He's in front of Congress, and it's all of a sudden they've identified the solution. The timing couldn't be more suspicious. Absolutely right. And the fact of the matter is, it was in there, whether he was briefed or not, he was under the impression that software was somewhere that they had attained. Right. Okay? So, for me to go before Congress and say, we have, because they were under pressure, because they were told to get this software of not necessarily the, the RP software, but they had failed at millions of dollars that had been put into it was the, is it the case case management? Yeah, because it was old. The, the first virtual case file they go. spent four hundred million dollars on. Yeah, uh, and it failed. Mm-hmm. And then later on, the CIO said uh, of the or the chief technology officer Jack Israel said that they were failing every time they tried to create this electronic case management system. They always failed that. But then uh, this is where we came in. We had a, had a solution. And I told you about the FBI meeting in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, other information before the raid. Remember, we were purported software mm-hmm. coming. I want to make this point real quick. He actually documented Melissa McRae. She was an FBI special agent in the CIO's office, the chief information officer of the FBI, who attended our interview. She, she admitted she was present to see Silk, which was the name of our software, and thought it was suitable for use in FBI field offices. 
So this is this is in her interview with John Smith before the raid. And he um, still fills out an affidavit that we're a purported software company, raids the company, uh, for only purpose we can think is to, is to allow somebody to steal the software. What and, else and remember, the raid happened in February of 2005. The indictment didn't come down until 2009. After they switched grand juries and wouldn't let, after David Zabola testified, couldn't get a first indictment. See, this is the constant changing of theories, this vindictive method to make sure we have got to put these guys away, put them in prison. They're getting too close to the money of these big companies. These are our boys. These, uh, the black guys at IRP are not our boys. We have to give it to the big white corporations. I'm sorry. That's just the nature of, of what was going on. So the RP5 um, software was in government textbooks, training books. Is that right? The software itself is one of the things, yes. That's viable. Well, not only that, uh, we were in police magazines. The government was aware of that. We were in Law Enforcement Technology magazine. The government was was aware of that. Uh, during uh, trial, Paul Tran of the Department of Homeland Security said that his primary goal, he worked with Stephen Cooper, who was the executive we talked about earlier. His primary goal was to find software to modernize DHS case management for 22 agencies. And he testified at trial that, that the IRP software, they were interested in it because the software had a lot of features that law enforcement and case agents can really use. The government's aware of all of this stuff prior to the raid. Uh, no, sometimes stuff, some stuff prior to the raid, yes. Other things prior to trial they're aware of so, because we submitted a proffer. So this is, and they still wouldn't drop the charges. No matter how much evidence we put forward, mm -hmm. how much stuff that shows that we weren't engaged in any criminal activity, they were going to continue to spin us into a wrongful conviction and, and manipulate and cherry pick certain facts to manipulate uh, to create a narrative uh, in front of a jury that made us look like like we were guilty, or at least involved in some sort of uh, uh, suspicious activity. If that's not a strategic, you have all of this information, all of this evidence that squashes a warrant for a purported software. The warrant doesn't even get signed. I promise you the information that you guys are sharing tonight was never presented to this judge. It was never presented. But the, the judge became aware the judge did become aware of the prior to the time. warrant? No, not prior to the warrant. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. The, the original where this ball started rolling was the warrant that was issued by a judge on the on the, on the basis that this was a purported software. Basically, as the definition David just read, yeah, they have the name, but there's no substance to it. It's not really a company. They're really not about what they're talking about. So then you have a judge that says, well, let's sign that, man. These right. guys are without that. That's why they built the foundation with this company's not real. Right. And they and they also use the term vaporware. Like we just, it was a, a figment of our imagination. We just, but that was, I'm sorry, Dimitri, go ahead. So, so to your point, Mud, it, they had to keep this illusion 
to get to get the judges. Every step in, in this justice, so-called justice system, they had to lie. They had to manipulate. They had to had to subterfuge to to, to put the narrative out there that these guys don't have software, which is a total well, lie. Well, you got everything saying that they do. And let, exactly. Let me give you the quotes from. Uh, first of all, uh, Sergeant John Shannon, NYPD commanding officer, investigative liaison, and was a consultant to our company. He said he said our software Silk was cutting edge. Government's aware of this. Did a fantastic job of rationalizing the investigative process, encompassed all the contributors of the investigative process along with the entire life cycle of an investigation, and it was the best software he had ever seen. We talked about in 2004. This we remember we were rated in 2005. Sergeant Bob Davis, who wrote the article in Police Magazine, received a demonstration of Silk and wrote an article in February 2004 edition of Police Magazine stating, Silk is powerful enough to become your agency's primary computerized investigative case management tool. Knowledge of the government dealing with purported, where we're a purported software company. We're in Police Magazine. Uh, the purported companies are not going to be in Police Magazine. They exactly. don't exist. And also in 2004 was an article in Law Enforcement Technology Magazine that talked about, it was a lengthy article about the software. The chief of police for Colorado Springs in our back door uh, and a former LAPD commander stated that he was impressed with Silk and he's quote impressed and that IRP solution has quote, developed an innovative and timely solution for law enforcement agencies. This was, and you talked about the textbook earlier. In 2007, obviously this is, about the time of the second indictment, uh, the the, tool, the the textbook, the college textbook, was called Criminal Investigation, the eighth edition. Authors Wayne Bennett and Carrot has said that Silk meets the standard described in the Department of Justice's National Institute Justice Track for Crime Scene Investigation, a guide to law enforcement. So we were even tied that our software was aligned with the DOJ's. Uh, guide on how to conduct crime scene investigations, which was a core component, another core component of our software. All this information available to the government, uh, much of it, most of it before the warrant and other after after the trial, uh, uh, right, right before the indictment in 2009, and we'll get some more into that. But right now, we're, we're, uh, we're just kind of backtracking and showing you John Smith is in, in court testifying. He's already put uh, FBI agent John Smith resident court testifying about this was a civil matter. We wouldn't have been paid if we had, we wouldn't have been if we had paid our debts. He also created this this search warrant that said we were a purported software company. They had all this information, and then we sent this information also to the U.S. Attorney John Walsh, who was ultimately appointed by Obama. Uh, in hopes that he would drop the dismiss the case and drop the indictment, he still sure wouldn't do it. So he jumped in to the cabal and decided he was going to work with Judge Arguello with Matthew Kirsch and, and team up together to ensure that we were put in prison. Uh, uh, wrong, wrong, wrong. That's, that's that's absolutely insane. We're going to take a quick break, Dave. I'm coming back to you. Clint, I'll come back to you. Dennis, William, coming back to you as well. Tanika, I think you have a comment. Folks, feel free to dial in 646-200-0628. I'll tell you right now, if you have any slight belief that this is a Hollywood production, I can assure you it is not. This is reality. 
The lives of these men affected eight years. Federal prison. Wrongfully. This is AJC Radio. They're known as the IRP5. We'll be right back. Meeting a teen girl online is actually pretty easy. You can go into any chat room and just start talking. Most of the girls are usually so insecure and desperate for attention. Attention from older guys is totally flattering. They're so much more mature and understanding than the guys might. Age actually works to my advantage. They like to brag to their friends that they're dating an older guy, so I just play along and pretend I'm really interested. interested in the same things I am. You can talk forever and really get to know someone without worrying about looks or whatever. That's the best thing about chatting. Chatting seems unthreatening to them, so they lower their guard. After a while, I start talking about how we're soulmates and how lucky we are to have found each other. Other people don't understand. I know what I'm doing. If you really care about each other, there's nothing wrong with me. Meeting them is the goal. Once I get them out of their house, well, that's when things get really interesting. Online predators know what they're doing. Do you? to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one. Side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, bad credit scores, higher health care costs, Children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the ten biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. You can tell a lot about someone by what they spend their money on, their priorities, their concerns, and their motives. Big Pharma says their top priority is research and development. They say that prescription drug costs are so high because they spend so much on research. But the simple truth is nine out of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend 50% more on advertising than they do on research and development. It's true. Tens of billions more. The more they spend, the clearer it becomes. Big pharma's priorities are more ads, more sales, and higher costs to you. It's time for big pharma to get their priorities straight. Americans deserve open and honest prescription drug pricing. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. There was a shooting. When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. Focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have 
join the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love, compassion, and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be the same. Ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grimmie Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration. Absolutely not. It's not a toy. You know that. Do I? I bet it looks like one. Yeah, well, it's not. Anyway, I need it to protect you, your sister and mom. From what? From bad guys, like on TV. But what about the eight kids who get shot every day by mistake? Their daddies probably thought they were safe, too. Where'd you hear that? TV. Yeah, well, maybe we don't believe everything we hear on TV. Where do you keep it? <laughs> it's hidden. I bet it's on top shelf of the closet, under your sweatshirt. Is it loaded? It's not. I, I keep the bullets. In the boots with the red laces, and the chest beside the bed. I haven't found them yet, but I'm sure I can. You always tell me to be curious. Remember when I found my Christmas gift? I'm a good climber, you know. No. No, that's not what I meant. Look, I, I need to be ready if someone breaks in. But what about when it's just me and Mom? You taught me to be brave. I can use a gun to protect her. No, Justin, I promise. I'll teach you how to handle a gun when you're old enough. And what if I don't make it to old enough? I could get bullied and decide it's too much for me. It would be so easy with our gun. Our gun? Nobody. My gun. But it is our gun. In our home. Happens all the time. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'm always here for you. But, Dad...
I really wish I was in school. School ends, but free lunches for your kids don't have to. Find your local food bank at feedingamerica.org slash summer meals for help. Together, we're Feeding America. With one call, you don't have to be a victim anymore. These fights are getting worse. I don't know what to do. With one call, you can end the cycle of violence. We're glad you called. The first thing we want to do is to ensure your safety. With one call, you can change everything. To speak to a domestic abuse victim advocate, contact your local family advocacy program. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. The number is 646-200-0628. The IRP5 journey to the road of injustice is crystal clear. And I'll tell you right now, uh, I was sharing with the team here before, uh, this story literally is unbelievable. There is no way that you could find... uh, any criminal conduct by the RP5 in this case. The judge was so egregious here. Federal Judge Christina Arguello was so egregious here. I'm sitting here scratching my head trying to figure out, is this absolutely possible? I tell you right now, it's not only possible, it's a reality. At the end of this circus, of what they call due process. These men went to prison for eight years. That's no small thing. I am blown away. No matter how many times you tell this story, the reason you'll never understand it because there's nothing to understand other than the corruption that took place in this case. As the RP5 were explaining that This information, the facts, the pending business, the current business that was being done, the vetting by the Department of Homeland Security. If you think that DHS did not vet RP Solutions, you're insane. That's the government of the United States, I promise you. Before they give a dime to anybody. They're going to bet you. So how do you have all of this evidence to support the innocence of these men? And you still prosecute. You have information showing this was a viable company. You got a veteran of DHS, 30 years saying this product is viable. You have... The gentleman, uh, forget the name, Andrew, uh, 
Yeah, we'll we'll get into that. That's get into that. But just to bring. But you got Melissa, Melissa. You got the. You said say you got the thirty year agent of Immigration and Customs making the same viable software. You got Melissa McRae, Melissa McRae of the FBI, stating that the software was suitable for working FBI field office. That's enough. If you didn't have anybody Anything else. else. Destroys the government's case. Certainly, where's your intent? Even if not only it's there's nothing there, but if there was something there, the intent would would those facts would, would just so that that justifies. Okay, we're we're making going into debt because we're anticipating getting a contract based on what we're being told by these large but agencies. How many companies have a projection of sales for whatever product it might be? It is, it is projected. You will incur some debt. Now, I want to – I'll interject this very quickly. Now, we were indicted, and you, we're going to constantly come, come – we're doing this backstory again. We're at trial right now. But we're doing this backstory. You have to ask, well, why a raid? Why a search warrant? And you look at the facts behind that the government had – there should have been a search warrant. Then you say, why an indictment? Well, the government had even more facts leading up to the 2009 indictment. One of those key facts, late 2008 to early 2009, were actually, the government said we lied about having current or impending contracts. This was in the indictment. Well, you lied about having current or impending contracts with the large, with the large uh, federal or state agency. Well, in six months before we're indicted, five to six months before we're indicted, there was a current and impending contract with the city of Philadelphia. That's all in emails. That's all in writing. We're setting up two contracts, one with the inspector general of the Philadelphia and the other one with the, with the, with the, with the Philadelphia police department. Now I'll show emails in 2009 show the government has this, that after agreeing the terms with IRP to deliver silk, Philadelphia's office of the inspector general Specifically, Philly Inspector General Amy Curlin, a former federal prosecutor, and Laura Larson, she was the chief investigator of the Office of uh, Inspector General for Philadelphia, were very excited about silk. These are quotes by Amy Curlin. I will make arrangements, arrangements with Mayor Michael Nutter's office for a thank you to IRP Solutions. Uh Ms. Curlin also says, can we please get this moving as soon as possible? Uh, all the contract stuff's being, being put in place at the time. Uh, the chief investigator for the OIG says all of the OIG is very excited about this venture. And then Philadelphia's Deputy Mayor of Justice and Public Safety, Everett Gillison, sent an email to IRP concerning IRP search warrant module stating, I look forward to seeing getting an update on how silk might integrate well with our plans for the police. Why, why a warrant? Why an indictment? Why a trial? And now uh, as, as we continue the, the, this series and we continue to go through what the government's doing at trial now, they've done all this crooked stuff before trial to get, to get a search warrant, to get an indictment, uh, and in fact, we were told by the secretary of the, by the secretary of the IG for Philadelphia that they received a, a call from the prosecutor, who was Matthew T. Kirsch at the time, that an indictment was coming. 
So it scuttled our business. They wouldn't do business with us after receiving that phone call. Uh, so if you take a look and one final note, the director of IT for Philadelphia, Gary Cardenas, stated in his interview with the FBI that Silk looked exactly what the Philadelphia P- Police Department was looking to purchase and that the police department was very close to having the product installed prior to discovery of the FBI investigation. So we were there to make money, make money to pay our bills. We shouldn't have been going to prison for a failure to pay bills anyway, but now that we're on the verge of paying bills uh, with this contract with the city of Philadelphia, the government calls and tells them I'm going to have an indictment coming. So now we still can't pay our bills. So he can use that as a sword in trial to, to, uh, make us look guilty and to spin a story and a theory before a jury that we just went out, we were fraudsters, we got all this debt, uh, staffing companies lost money, and that's why, uh, why Why were we at trial? You can't, you know, I can answer these questions. Well, the issue is the naivety of a jury is what the government of the United States depended on. That's what they depended on. Did you get a comment about the jury? Yeah, I was just reading um, some facts, and it said uh, more than 60% of jurors say they don't understand the laws that are being asked in court, that, and they don't understand what's going on in a court case. So you have somebody who who is corrupt. you got a corrupt lawyer, a corrupt judge, set you guys up, and then you put them in front of a jury that have no idea. It's talking about how many people you know lie to get out of it, and then if they can't get out of it, how many of them don't pay attention, don't care, because their mind is, I want to get off this jury, I don't want to be home, that the average person wants to serve a day. Well, we know that a trial is not going to be a day. Out so, of three weeks. So, matter. yeah, they're they're going, it was just a lot of interesting facts um, of people that, and then they said that the majority of people say that they believe that juries are biased. So if that's, if that's the case, then what's What's the purpose? Then? Well, I'll so tell you that sixty percent of wrongful convictions could be laying out there. Well, not, only, not only that, they're in good company. If juries are biased, they're in good company with the criminal justice system of this country. Because from the time you get arrested, again, we said a long time ago, the presumption of innocence is a joke. That's a joke. The fact that the this is why Kirsch and Walsh, uh, these guys should be arrested. And charged with a crime. You know why? They gave false information to secure the conviction of five guys. You should be sentenced to prison on the time in which you gave. I am I am so blown away right now. Not only did you not have enough when RP Solutions began to do business. In order to solidify your lie, to cement it, you call the people they're pending contracts with and blackball them and say to them, you already know when you make this statement, an indictment is coming. You already know they're going to shut them down. So not if you had no evidence to support that they had done nothing wrong, so why don't we take another step further? There's pending business for these guys. And our motive is what it is. It's corrupt and it's crooked. So now what we have to do, any pending business, let's shut it down. 
tell these guys there's an indictment coming. Then it solidifies my theory, which right. is a lie. And once you can pay your debt back, it shows, it gives the perception that these guys were lying all the time. And all you need is a perception for is, a jury. Because perception is reality. That is the most troubling, disgusting thing I think I have ever heard. And, and, and Lamont, after our conviction, even after a former federal appeals judge appealed to President Obama, he was in the Washington Post, uh, and he wrote in his blog on the Huffington Post stating, this is H. Lee Sarakin, former federal appeals judge, the government's contention that their business was nothing but a scam defies reality. We've already established right. that here. Uh, he went on to say and explain the, he also explained the absurdity of the government's charges. Sarakin said, if a scam, would you single out law enforcement agencies as your sole customers? Would you work for years developing a program? Would you leave other gainful employment to join the venture? Would you hire former former law enforcement personnel to work on your project? Would you spend your own time and money for years improving the software? Would you personally guarantee the corporate debts and risk your own financial security? If a scam, wouldn't the perpetrators make some money out of it? That goes back to something that happened at trial where uh, the prosecutor said nobody got fabulously wealthy from this because there, there was no money motivation. Uh, the only possible way for the defendants to profit was if the company was a success, Sarah can explain. So even when uh, a man of high integrity and honor, uh, Judge Sarakin, got involved, explained these, this thing, sent it to President Obama. He also, because he had appointed John Walsh, presum presumably, and didn't want political fallout, he let us go to prison and rot in prison and at that same time he released uh chelsea chelsea manning and saying that chelsea manning should be released from prison who admitted to uh stealing and releasing thousands of pages of classified documents but he's going to release her and let african americans with uh the backing of a federal judge telling him the story that happened and allow them to go to prison. So not only did the, the prosecutor, the judge, the FBI, uh, the appellate court receive information on this stuff. They still allowed this stuff to go forward. Nobody, all the way up to the president of the United States, nobody cared that we were being railroaded and put in prison for a crime we didn't commit. And we, and we had to go through a trial. We had to go through all this stuff destruction of our business, and finally at trial, and we're going to get some more in details, of the constant manipulation of facts and evidence to ensure we went to prison and were and, and, uh, barred from competing by putting us in prison so big companies could get the business. And I believe that to be the sickest thing of all. The calculation of the innocent. I don't, I don't get that. How do you manipulate and set a scheme in place to wrongfully convict men who are not guilty? That is as corrupt and disgusting as it gets. You'll have people 
I think it was George Arguello made the statement, why are we still talking about this case? I can assure you, there is no expiration date of not exposing you. And the entire system that did a grave miscarriage of justice to the RP5, we don't expire. Injustice does not expire. So if you were worried at seven years, you're going to be worried the next seven and the next seven. This voice or this light never goes out, ever. It's not going to happen. Because what I hear, I am troubled equally the same, if not more, every time I hear this story. Not a book. Eight years you took from these men. Luana Banks-Clark, a victim of your injustice, no longer with us, who was troubled about the injustice we saw here. Expiration? How many years? You can't count that high. That this story will be told. We'll come back to close out this show. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fear justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Let me tell you who to blame. Blame the boy lying at your feet, his body oozing life through the hole in his stomach where the bullet tore him apart. Blame him for challenging you, for not looking away and for not backing down when you pulled out the gun. Blame your mother for bringing you into this world when she was but a kid herself and for dragging you up, not bringing you up. Blame society for not giving you hope. Blame your father for not being there, the man who looked after himself instead of looking after you. Blame the gun in your hand for making you a target, for making you more likely to be picked off. Blame the dead boy, blame your mother, blame society, blame your father, blame the gun, blame anyone but yourself for not being strong enough to put down the gun, to break the cycle.
sit here tonight, ladies and gentlemen, outraged. Do you live the injustice that we have? You'll never understand our outrage. I can tell you tonight, as I mentioned, Luana Banks-Clark earlier, troubled, concerned about her brethren, costed her life. She suffered 2018, made it clear she was troubled with what she saw in this system. You say all the time that these are casualties or collateral damage of injustice. To see David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Quint Stewart in this studio stating their case that was not allowed in the court of Federal Judge Christine Arguello. I can assure you, as I said earlier, I'll reiterate it again, injustice and telling and fighting against injustice does not have an expiration date. I am still moved to tears for this injustice. It is absolutely could not have been written better in Hollywood in a script. But the difference here is reality is what happened here. It is a disgrace in this country for what these men have suffered and many others that are suffering at the hand of injustice. We're going to continue this here. In the next few weeks, we should wrap this story up, but I promise you, we're not done speaking about it, nor are we done fighting for the RP5. It is important that you understand as listeners, as this was done to the RP5, so can it be done to you. You don't begin to understand the heartache of this situation. Because somebody did not want to see these men succeed. That is disgrace at its highest level. Federal Judge Christina Real, Matthew Kirst, Mr. John Walsh, who has moved on. We will call you to question. We'll call you to answer these issues that lay at the feet of the steps of injustice. For next week, America, this is AJC Radio. Good night.